Dr. Murphy couldn't help himself. Despite all the comics and movies about mad scientists and their uncontrollable laughter, when the steam in the Enviropod dissipated and he saw the culmination of his research, he tossed his head back and laughed. The creature walked on its massive hind legs, shook its molting wings, and rattled the tip of its slender tail. When it noticed Dr. Murphy, the creature flicked its forked tongue, clicked its hooves, and bared its fangs. It was an apex predator, absorbing genetic information from its prey, assimilating them after death. Able to adapt any disease, any climate, its potential was limitless. His son upstairs in his hospital bed could be cured by just a drop of its blood. Dr. Murphy laughed again, then went quiet. The creature laughed too, pointing to the Enviropod's torn open air vent. The creature was laughing. It sounded just like his son. WNSP presents the No Sleep Podcast Hour, starring David Cummings and the No Sleep Players. Nights of darkness. Fear creeping through your soul. Pounding heartbeats. Join us for tales of horror during the dark hours when you dare not close your eyes. And we're warning you. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. David Cummings, thank you for daring to be with us at the No Sleep Podcast Hour. The horror of scientific experimentation run amok. Mad scientists, nefarious attempts to mold nature to our will. It's the theme of this week's episode, one kicked off with a biological oddity from author Gus Wood. From the tale which was this episode's cold open, Breakthrough. Performed by Mike Delgadio. We are now quite late in our journey through the 1950s. I fear it may be time to bid farewell to the earliest decade of television and move on to the 1960s next week. But the 50s were a time when technology was certainly advancing quickly. So quickly, in fact, that there were many movies and TV shows which drew upon the fear of that change and scientific advancement to craft tales of horror. The fear of the unknown this technology might birth. Uh, It's a good thing we've grown to never fear change or new technology, right? So now, adjust the antenna, tune in our signal, and settle in front of the TV to watch this week's Nightmares. In our first tale, we visit a place where you might assume new technology has no place a cemetery. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Paul Spencer, even a graveyard can be spruced up with some high-tech gear 
There's nothing creepy about visiting a grave where you can see and hear the departed, is there? Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews and David Alt. So bring your flowers if you must, but be respectful of the departed when you go to mourn in Eternity Park. The gates were wrought iron, like any other cemetery you care to mention. But Eternity Park was different, one of a special breed. I'd heard about them, of course, never expected to visit one personally. They were few and far between, designed for the grieving elite. Private memorial parks and cemeteries with a very modern twist. I suppose it was a logical progression, from simple wooden markers, crosses staked into earth, to headstones of granite inscribed with verses, to this. You see, the designers had taken their memorials to the next level. They could actually recreate the person buried beneath. Sure, that was a florid way of putting it. Some used other terms, like electric ghost. Images of the dead, standing proud and smiling. Three-dimensional holograms, activated only when authorised. Each burial plot doubled as a projection platform, with miniature cameras tracking your viewing angle and adjusting accordingly. A high-definition video screen was inset into granite, replaying moments from your loved one's life. Powered by an AI kernel, they could even talk to you their voices manufactured from dozens of recordings submitted by the clients. The idea filled me with dread. The past held nothing but pain for me. But for some, they brought comfort. Who was I to argue with that? Entry to the park was by access card. There would be no visible cameras, cabling or technology. Everything was obfuscated, neatly disguised, buried like the bodies. It had to look and feel right. But security was tightly controlled, I guarantee you that. I left my car at the roadside, stood for a moment in the cool evening air, gazing at the park entrance with a sense of disquiet. A simple card scan, and the gates drifted open automatically, silently, closed neatly behind me. No whining hinges for this place, just an electric hum. I tightened my grip on the kit bag. Tablet, diagnostic tools. My life may have been a parade of failures outside of tech, but my work was exemplary. I'd been recommended to an elite consultancy firm who could pretty much charge whatever they wanted. Eternity Park was one of their juiciest clients. So just do the job you were contracted to do, I told myself. A simple OS repair. The site was almost too respectful. Beautifully trimmed lawns, polished headstones of black granite with gold trim in regimented rows. Lighting columns that cast an ambient glow. There was something corporate about it. Something cold. Took me a while to find the spot. Row 18, plot 20. His name was Trent. Nice to meet you, I thought. 
The video screen was opaque like all the others in the park, still glistening from the last rainfall. Crouching, I wiped off the liquid, then bypassed the thumbprint scanner. The screen powered up and a few lines of code appeared, somehow comforting in the dark. I set to work, unpacking my carry-all. It was quiet. I pulled out the tablet, cursed the absence of a chair, and operated the touchscreen keyboard. As usual, I entered a kind of... What do they call it? Flow. Fully intent on the task at hand, gratefully banishing all harmful thoughts. It was my favourite part of the work. I almost had the machine booting when I heard it. A voice. A male voice, some distance away. Muffled, as if a hand was pressed over the mouth. I turned, at once mystified. The park was intentionally isolated, out of town. The city was a kilometre north. They said I'd be the only one here. Someone else doing maintenance? Or perhaps my presence was unanticipated. Had they dispatched a security guard to taser me into oblivion? I couldn't see the entire cemetery. It wasn't large, but it was tiered. There were levels, short flights of steps, tight corners. But now that I was listening intently, the noise seemed to have ended, and silence fell like a shroud. I tried to focus on my work. Maybe it had just been in my head after all. Wouldn't have been the first time. I always thought it was strange that you could hear a sound in your thoughts tumbling down those dark halls of memory. Snatches of music. Unwanted voices. I decided I'd find some excuse to refuse a return visit. This place was bad for me. I began rebuilding the operating system on the headstone terminal. Slowly, my shoulders began to ease. I began to realise, too slowly, that the voice, a dark undercurrent, a murmur, had already returned. Maybe it never went away. I froze, immovable as the headstone in front of me. Those same muffled words, though I couldn't make them out. I recognised only the sibilant sounds, repeated over and over. It had to be another headstone character... That was the likely explanation. Somehow it had powered on. But how could that be so? No one was here to authorise it. Another glitch? Well, I couldn't go on ignoring it, as much as the desire to leave was rising. Lowering my kit, I made my way through the aisles of stone, through careful arrangements of white roses and lilies and soft wet grass, tracking the source. My hands were trembling. The voice grew louder as I grew closer. It definitely wasn't in my head. It was real. There was something up ahead. A phosphorescent glow filtered through the branches of a nearby tree. I paused, taking a breath. Then forced myself on. It was light. Nothing more. No threat here. After all, since when had light caused harm? There it was then. I had my explanation. A full-sized human figure, glowing bright, suspended above its burial plot, brought to life by the projectors. A kind of mist lit from within, the glow reflecting off the nearby stones. 
must be riddled with errors. No wonder they needed repair work. As I approached, it actually turned its head to regard me. They could do that, apparently. Eerie. I felt almost nauseous. I hadn't been able to look it in the face yet. Instead, I glanced at the inscription on the headstone. A simple, dull, in-loving memory. Then I saw the name and instantly felt a crawling in my gut. Mary Malone. The surname meant nothing to me, but the first name, Mary, matched my own. I'd always hated that name. I went by Rosie, my mother's name. Just an unwelcome coincidence, that's all. Fingernails digging into my palms, I finally raised my head to look at the eyes of the projected figure. There was something wrong. That much was plain. The image was corrupted, the face improperly formed, its eyes distended as if melting, its jaw hanging down, tongue snaking out. It flickered again and snapped back into place. As if sensing my presence, it began to speak. At first, the sound was corrupted, like the face, more of a synthesized gagging noise. Then slowly, I began to make out the words. A tone. This voice, with a sound like gravel in a throat full of fluid, hardly aligned with the name on the headstone. This wasn't Mary at all. This was someone else. Incredibly, it was reciting a nursery rhyme. Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With shells and silver bells and pretty maids all in a row. The blood began to drain from my cheeks. The voice... The rhyme was terrifyingly familiar. I knew at once who it was. Impossible. Brutal. It was him. He had chosen this grave. These words. Only he used my real first name to purposefully agitate me. That was what he always did. Find ways to hurt me. I didn't want to be here. The place wasn't a tribute or a comfort or poignant link to the past. It was an abomination, a curse. The dead should be dead and gone. Memories should be left to fade from those dark halls, not paraded out like corpses in daylight. I walked almost blindly toward the exit, blinking back tears, numb. The talking faded away. Someone had done this to me, deliberately targeted, remotely the system. Maybe they were watching me now. Well, they were going to regret it. I was going to find them. But most of all, I was going to get away. Get in my car, still parked outside the gates, and drive. And keep driving. All night if I had to. But when I finally reached the wall and reached for my security pass, too late, I realised I'd left it with my diagnostic kit. I turned red with anger at my own stupidity. I'd have to cross most of the park to get back to the first burial plot. I cursed the place with all my heart, from its assiduously tended lilies, to its polished headstones, to the roots of its earth. And then, in the space of a whisper, the entire park was plunged into darkness. All at once, every lighting column had winked out before I even realised what was happening. 
For a few moments, I saw nothing, as if my eyesight had been stolen away. Then, as my eyes adapted, the glimmering of streetlights and the dark, distant hills made themselves known. Far too distant to be of any help. I felt a rising sense of panic. Rational thought tried to re-establish a hold. Calm. Keep calm. It was a localised power outage, nothing more. The whole park was clearly broken. Or maybe it was something else. An act of malicious outside control. Remembering it was still in my jacket pocket, I snatched out my phone and thumbed on the torch. But the weak glow was no match for the dark of unpopulated land. There was an eruption of light near the first row of stones. The figure had moved. Moved to another headstone. This couldn't be. This is all supposed to be impossible. I had to know for sure. I walked toward it, heart like a rock, torchlight dancing from my shaking hand. It had gained definition. The eyes were more human, but completely white, without pupils. Like two pearls. The face was shot through by swimming video static, but I recognised it immediately. The deceptively warm smile, those sunken cheeks, the one face from my past I never wanted to see again. I screamed one word. Every minute I was forced to listen to him was like my skin burning. But I did it anyway. Used whatever tools I had in my possession to tear up the earth and smash the projector terminals until my fingers were bloody. Only when I finished, the tablet shattered. The phone. Did I realise he was gone? The rest of the park became as silent and still as the moment I first arrived. Even the lights had come back on. Somehow there was no doubt in my mind. I felt certain I'd seen the last of him. At least in this form. I wish I could have vandalised every stone. This place should not be allowed to exist. They fired me, of course. Eternity wanted to charge me with criminal damage too, but I think they knew the footage existed. They suspected the park had been hacked. I could see it in their eyes. I could read it between the lines of their legal correspondence, despite never finding any evidence to support that. The thing is, I never suspected that. Not really. I knew that he'd found a way to come back. A little thread he could pull. That's all it took. Because this was the kind of thing he did. It became almost impressive. He would find the sickest, most original ways to turn the thumbscrews on my life. It would always surprise me. And I suppose this was the most surprising of all. I'll try to stop them from creating these abominations. I'll keep telling my story. Even if I'm just a feeble voice in the wind, like the dead crying out from beneath the earth. But I can't help but wonder. We all leave our imprints on life. In the advancing world of technology, ever more so. Digital footprints. Digital echoes. Enough to rebuild a hollow, artificial version of us owned by a corporation soulless one day after I'm gone 
Will these words be used against me? Will my voice be heard again, separated from the soul that created it? Will I be stood forever beside a headstone, staring out with bright eyes of mist, smiling broadly? An electric ghost, tied forever to my grave? Being online means you're able to interact with seemingly limitless numbers of people from around the world. And more and more these days, you can find yourself interacting with non-human, computer-based chat programs. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author René Rain, one man digs deep into an online dialogue with what he assumes is a program. A very advanced and unsettling program. Performing this tale is James Cleveland. So let's find out what this man means when he tells us, I found a weird chatbot, but I think some of his replies aren't just nonsense. A couple of weeks ago, I stumbled upon a strange post on 4chan's X board. The OP of the thread said he'd found some strange comments under random articles online. No one had reacted to the thread yet, so I decided to check it out. For as long as I can think back, I've been scouring the internet for weird and strange things. To be honest, I didn't believe there was much to OP's post, but I was kind of bored. The comment itself was nothing but gibberish. It made no sense at all. Maryland, strange river, lost in dark, cute, dogs, love, nature, walk, long, Tokyo city, many times, want Japan, all high, no one, flowers, birds, like, play, inside, dark, no one, here, out. I was hoping it might be some strange, cryptic message, but it looked more like someone had been toying around with Google Translate. I played around with it a bit, but I soon lost interest. I made a quick reply telling the poster that it was most likely nonsense. Later on, I saw that the guy had posted once again. He wrote that he'd thought the same thing at first. After browsing through the blog, he'd found a variety of other similarly weird comments, all by the same poster. The poster's name wasn't normal either, it was merely a string of numbers. All the comments were similar, utterly cryptic, and made no sense at all. We soon started to talk on Discord since 4chan can be a bitch about link sharing. He sent me some of the articles with comments, but told me that there were dozens more on that specific blog. He'd even found others all over the internet. At first, he thought it was completely random, but there seemed to be a pattern. All of the comments were below articles about travel, nature, and animals. Our conversation continued on for a while, and we started to make wild guesses about what was going on. Our theories were as outlandish as they were dumb, but... At least we had a bit of fun and we could let our imagination run wild. By then it was pretty late though, so we went to bed. It was the next day I found a couple more messages from my new friend on Discord. The first few were about other blogs and websites he'd found comments under. 
The last message was where things got interesting. He said they discovered a link, or at least part of a URL under some comments. After toying around with it for hours, he somehow figured out the full URL. I've no clue how he did it. The page took forever to load. Once it was done, it was nothing but a list of URLs. When I clicked one of them, it sent me to yet another article with similar comment below. That's when I was hooked. There had to be something going on here. As I started to scroll down the page, I realized that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of articles. Every single one I had clicked had one of those weird comments. It was by sheer accident and wild clicking that I found something else. I was sent to a blank page with nothing but a simple entry field on it. There was no description on the page, no text, nothing. Only this one simple entry field. When I clicked it, I saw that I could type something into it. I typed a quick hello and pressed enter to see what would happen. A second after I sent my message, a hello popped up on the screen below the field. Who are you? I typed into the box. Another short little pause before I got another message. I don't know. It was evident that I was dealing with some sort of chatbot similar to Cleverbot. I toyed around with the thing for a bit. While most messages prompted normal or silly answers, some got a bit weirder. Here are a few of the answers I got. What's your name? Toby. How old are you? Time is not real where I am. Do you like books? I cannot see. Where were you last night? In your mom, XD. At first I thought it was merely programmed so that specific keywords would trigger these weird cryptic messages. Then I decided to ask some of the questions again to see what answers I'd get now. This time they were different. How old are you? Nine. Where were you last night? In the dark. So far it was nothing too weird. I reasoned that it was a less sophisticated version of Cleverbot. I asked a few more questions, but the answers were mostly silly and nonsensical. Then I got yet another cryptic one. Where are you? In a different place. One that exists nowhere. I really checked it off as a shitty AI, and that was it for me. The next reply sent a shiver down my spine. Are you alone? I'm never alone. The men in the walls are always watching. Reading something like this out of nowhere can be a bit creepy. Unsettling, even. Especially when it's the middle of the night and you're all by yourself. I decided to ask another question. Who are the men in the walls? You are in a wall. Well, I guess it's back to nonsense. It was at this point that I stopped toying with it. I sent a quick message to my new friend about my findings, and after that I watched a couple of YouTube videos and went to bed. When I got up, I had a few new messages. The guy wrote that he thought the same thing as me, nothing but a shitty chatbot that someone must have put together. It might even incorporate Cleverbot and add in random cryptic messages every once in a while, most likely to fuck with people who look too deeply into things. To be honest, I was a bit disappointed. I'd really hoped this was something more interesting. It was sheer boredom that sent me back to the chatbot later that evening. Here are a few of the interactions I had with it. Hello, chatbot. I'm different now. Another strange message. Guess I'll bite. Different from what? From the men in the walls. There it was again. Who are the men in the walls? Watching. 
Watching who? Watching you? No, I'm watching you. Why? So you don't steal my stuff, XD? The rest continued on similarly. Most of the replies I got were just like the ones you get from Cleverbot. The men in the walls comments stuck with me though. I found myself going back to the bot again and again. I don't know why, but I decided to put down all the strange or cryptic replies I got from the bot and put them into a document. They didn't appear often, but after a while they all seemed to be... similar. Here are the ones I got later that evening. Do you like movies? I am trapped. Why are you trapped? The men in the walls trapped me. What's your name? Toby. Are you a bot? I do not want to be. Don't want to be what? Do not want to be here. Do not want to be where? Do not want to be here. Do you like movies? Do not want to be here. This went on for a while. Great. I thought I broke the damn thing. I must have asked more than a dozen questions and all I got for an answer was the same do not want to be here. Finally though, I got a different reply. Why are you there? The men in the walls made me here. This was getting creepy and seriously interesting. Why did the men in the walls put you there? Calculations. What calculations? I do not like math. What calculations do you do? Math is stupid, XD. After that, the bot's replies had once more deteriorated. Whatever I tried, I only got nonsense. I decided to try some of the messages I sent the bot before that had gotten me weird or cryptic messages, if only to see how it would react. How old are you? There is no time here. Where are you? In the dark. What's your name? Toby. How old are you? Nine. Can you see? I can do nothing. Why can't you? Because the men in the walls trapped me in a computer. Okay. We've officially crossed the border into Bizarro Land. Why did they trap you? No, you are trapped. Why did the men in the walls trap you? To calculate. I sat there reading through all the messages I'd sent so far and I couldn't help but be crept out. There were so many that made no sense, but some stuck out. In the dark, Toby, nine, trapped in a computer, to do calculations. I can do nothing. Time is not real where I am because the men in the walls trapped me in a computer. It was just nonsense. It had to be. Someone was probably sitting at home, sliding me these weird messages and laughing their ass off. Yet I tried again. What are you? Human. No, you're a bot. Help me. What do you mean? Help me. Why do you need help? Help me. Are you Toby? Help me. Whatever I entered now, all I got was, Help me. It was at this point that I closed off the page. I shook my head, yet I couldn't help but shiver. Someone was definitely doing a great job at scaring random people on the internet with this thing. That day, I sent my new friend a message about the weird things I'd encountered on the chatbot. I didn't wait for an answer and I went to bed. When I checked my messages the next day, I had one by him. Interesting, but the bot seems to be gone now. There's only a message on the page that's saying the bot is discontinued, it read. I quickly opened the chatbot again, but he was right. The entry field was gone. 
Instead, the only thing that the page had now was simple text. Thank you for participating in the testing of our new AI bot. Your data will be very useful in our further development. The version of the bot you used has been retired. We'll be happy to be back with a newer version in the future. Well, I thought, that's that. I closed the page, but something didn't feel right. Why the help me? Why all those weird messages? Had the bot learned it from someone else? I'd never triggered a reply like, help me or I am trapped from Cleverbot. I went back to the page that contained the URL list. I scrolled around, but as I'd expected, there was nothing new, only the same old links. Nationalgeographic.co.uk, wonderlost.co, nomadicmat.com, attackofthecute.com, and other similar pages. I slowly scrolled through them all. It was after almost half an hour that I found a different URL buried between the rest of them. The domain name was weird, consisting only of random numbers and letters. I clicked the link and a new page opened up. At first, it was just a blank page again, but it was still loading. After a minute of waiting, the page finally loaded. I had no clue what it was, though. It just seemed to be a scientific document. I scrolled through it, and I had no idea what I was reading. There was so much scientific mumbo-jumbo. The little I understood made it clear that it was a document about AI programming. There were many chapters about topics like neural networks, game theory, and deep learning. As much as I tried to wrap my brain around it, I just couldn't. There was one part, though, that caught my interest. In the later chapters, the topic of man-machine combinations was mentioned. It talked at length about the process of combining the human brain with a computer-based neural network to create a more advanced AI. I scanned part of it, but it all read like a freaking science fiction novel. The more I read, the, the more my head started to hurt. When I reached the end of the document, I found hundreds of comments. The first one was from the beginning of 2014. All of them were written in a similar scientific fashion. Some mentioned different stages and iterations of some weird project. It took me minutes before I got to the current year. When I finally reached the end, I found one last comment, written just the night before. Help me. I stared at it for a long time. So many things were on my mind, but none made sense. I scrolled up and down the document again to read more of it. It wasn't long before the page refreshed itself and I got a 404 page not found error. When I tried to re-access the linked list, none of the URLs seemed to be working anymore. When I refreshed the page, I got the same result. 404 page not found. The same is true for the page of the chatbot now. I don't know what I stumbled upon there. I don't know if I stumbled upon anything there at all. That's why I'm writing this down. Maybe, maybe some of you can help me make a bit more sense of it. If you have a phone, it's very likely you've received one of those calls about extending your car's warranty, even if you don't have a car. 
Robocalls, am I right? They're bad enough most of the time, but what if you've had a really bad day? Like the man in this tale, shared with us by author Vince Dajani. He's a 911 operator, and the last thing he wants to do is deal with more phone calls. Unless, of course, he can vent some steam by wasting the spammer's time. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, Mike Delgadio, Sarah Thomas, Dan Zapula, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Doolin, Mary Murphy, and Mick Wingert. So if your phone rings, look for the spam call notice. Otherwise, you might answer it to hear the dreaded phrase, We've been trying to reach you concerning your vehicle's extended warranty. What's your emergency? I was shaking, barely able to hold the phone steady against my ear. Send the police to my location, please. She was just about to ask exactly where that was, but I know they can track cells at this point, so I don't answer. Instead, I say, my name is Vince. I'm wanted by the FBI. I'll keep the phone on until the cops arrive. Finally, the nightmare is over. The torment can stop. I sink down into an empty office chair. I know it's the operator's job to try to keep me talking. I do what I said I would. Stay on the phone. But I turn the volume way down. Barely audible through my racing thoughts. Officers will be here in about 20 minutes, I bet. My fingers are sticky. I look down at them. Wet, red smudges across the tips. Some blood must have gotten on the phone. I touch my ear. It's wet, too. I stand up again and start pacing the small office, trying to slow my breathing. I can't use voice. Can't record video. No one would believe it if I did. How do I even begin to explain this without sounding crazier than I already do? You know those robocalls? Or at least what I thought were just computer-generated... You should have received a notice in the mail about your car's extended warranty eligibility. Press 2 to be removed and placed on our do-not-call list. To speak to someone about possibly extending or reinstating your vehicle's warranty, press 1 to speak with a warranty specialist. It seems funny looking back on it, but I guess if I had any advice, it would be... Don't press 1. I'm sure you wouldn't. Most people would hang up. Some people might even press 2. Obviously, they hope you'll press one, because you're concerned about your car, or you're old, or stupid, I don't know. That's not me. I pressed one, because I'd had a shitty fucking day. Let me back up. You might have guessed. I'm a 911 operator myself. Almost every day is a shitty fucking day. Don't get me wrong, I, I love being able to help people in crisis. Before you go thinking my cautionary tale is about a good person getting screwed over by some scam artist, it's not. For two reasons. One, I wouldn't call myself a good person. Maybe I would have a few years ago. But for two, I wish they'd just stolen my credit. Now the thing they don't tell you before becoming an operator is that one out of every five calls, at least in my area, will be someone speaking their last words on the phone. 
and that you'll never be able to forget that silence you hear afterward. Fuck that silence. Three days ago, after a particularly silence-filled shift, I shoved my headphones in my ears on my walk home. The used always helps fill the space. I'm halfway home, air drumming along with the taste of ink, when the song stops, replaced by my obnoxious ringtone. My phone's always on vibrate, so when it actually rings in my ears, I'm doubly annoyed. It's a 443 number. Local. It's probably spam, but what if it isn't? My grandmother's old. My dad is always getting involved in things he shouldn't. Maybe I won the goddamn lotto. I answer. We've been trying to reach you concerning your vehicle's extended warranty. Of fucking course. I'm just about home. No more time to relax before it's back to reality. Well, if they waste my time, I'll waste theirs. I press one. It's a real person. Hello, my name is Paul. Who am I speaking with? No accent. Surprising. Vince, I said. Why not? Vince, what is your last name? I hesitate. This is obviously a trick. I have to be able to look your warranty up in our system, sir. Oh, he's good at this. Vince Bennett? Fake last name. Just to mess with him. I hear typing. Vince Bennett. Thank you for joining the call today. I see your warranty here. Could you please verify the make and model of your car? I make up more info. Ah, yes. I see that. Thank you for confirming. How can I help you today? I'd like to extend that warranty that I keep hearing about. Can I do that? Absolutely, sir. Let me... Some bullshit I don't remember now. It's not important. But the thing he said next threw me off. Oh. I see your profile here, sir. and would happily extend your warranty free of charge. I just need you to repeat a phrase for me to confirm that you're alright with that. Free of charge? He didn't need a credit card or have me wire $500 to some prince in Africa? Well, what was the phrase? The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. For real? I repeat it, emulating his diction. Was he messing with me back? Maybe he found out that my name was fake. Maybe it wasn't associated with whatever database he had linked to my cell phone, and he just wanted to get me in the system. Either way, it wasn't funny anymore. I was about to hang up when he quickly thanks me for my time. Don't hesitate to call us back if you encounter any issue with your new warranty. And ends the call. Bert McCracken's voice yells at me in my earbuds. I almost forget I was listening to music. Honestly, the call was weird. It got me through the end of my walk and into my apartment. By the time it ended, I was lying on my sofa, baffled. Z, my roommate, called out from the other room. Who are you on the phone with? Nobody. Was probably what I said. It wasn't until later that night when things got weirder. I remember the time exactly. 2.37 a.m. when my phone was vibrating so loud that it woke me up. I looked over in my stupor to see another random number calling. I ignored it, bitch-buttoned and tried to go back to sleep. It started vibrating again. Different number this time. All right, going to silent. I found myself staring into a mirror, one of those full-length ones. I touched it, and my reflection mimicked it. 
and my hand kept coming closer, through the mirror. I couldn't move, but rather just watched my own fingers wiggle eagerly as they came toward my neck. The face in the mirror made a motion to shush me, as if telling me everything was okay. His hand clenched around my throat, and I felt the grip start to tighten. Then I jolted awake. My phone read 6.54 a.m., just a few minutes before my alarm was supposed to go off. After the one call in the middle of the night, I expected to wake up with a bunch of spam voicemails, regretting adding myself to whatever list I'd gotten to. All for what? Just to satisfy some ego about standing up to an annoyance? Bah, shake it off. Coffee, breakfast, shower, then back into work. My coworker Lorraine stopped me near the clock-in station. I uh, thought you were out sick today. Murphy force you in? Out sick? She clarified. Apparently, I called out sick today. Our boss took me off the schedule. It wasn't me. I'm obviously not sick. Luckily, no one else had filled the spot yet, so I was able to work. It seemed like a normal workday. A few break-ins. One woman calling because her boyfriend smoked the last of her weed. Not 911 worthy, by the way. Six car accidents. Until I got a crisis call. A man threatening self-harm. There's probably a full transcript being written up of the call. I'm sure it'll release on some news report in a few days, once this whole situation's been sorted out or after they announce I've been arrested. But for now, I'd rather not relive the whole thing if I can help it. And to spare you most of the routine details, the caller was a man in his thirties. He wouldn't give me a name, but he did sound familiar to me. Maybe a repeat caller or someone famous I'd heard before. He gave me his location and I dispatched EMS and police as quickly as possible. It's protocol to try to keep them on the phone, so I did. You said you're in your bedroom, right? What color are the walls? Blue. I'm sure you have something hanging that's important to you, a poster or a picture of family or friends? Nothing. I, I have no one. I'm completely alone. You're not alone. I'm here with you. You don't even know my name. He was starting to sound desperate. Sad. Maybe even crying. I'd love to know your name. You tell me something about yourself and I'll, I'll tell you something about me. Then we won't be strangers. I heard some movement. A siren way in the distance on the other end of the phone. The police were close. Then, a click. Something metallic. I thought he'd hung up at first until he said, My name is Vince. Vince Bennett. A gunshot rang out, blaring into my ear. I shot up from my desk out of terror, and Lorraine looked at me from across the cubes. Are you okay? The sound of the gun, the squish, the slump, then nothing echoed over and over in my head. Then there was always just silence after. Two minutes and twelve seconds of silence through my headset as I waited on the phone for officers to arrive at the scene and pick up, letting me know what happened. But I knew what happened. I didn't need them to tell me. Surprisingly, they never did. That 132-second wait was until my boss tapped me on the shoulder. She called me into her office. Dispatch and EMTs just reported that they found no one on the scene you sent them to. No body, no gun. The location was an elderly couple alone. Didn't you trace the call after you were given the address? Of course I did. We were on the phone for a while. I didn't make a mistake. 
The number was a landline associated with the house at that location. Does the name Vince Bennett mean anything to you? Fuck. I realized. I'd just gotten pranked for lying to a spam caller. And I thought it was real. I didn't tell her. I couldn't. Instead, I left work early. Turned out I wasn't feeling all that great after all. That evening, the phone calls continued again. On the 4th, I answered. I pressed 1. Please wait to hear the full menu of options before putting in your request. For real? I waited. I heard the goddamn menu, then I pressed 1 again. Hello, Vince Bennett. This is Paul. Are you enjoying your car's new extended warranty? Listen, you fucking asshole. I let him have it. I knew it was him, and he knew I knew. But why the fuck was he doing this? What was the point? I was never giving him money. He can try to scam someone else. It's not about money. Everyone always assumes it's about money. To which I very politely asked what the fuck it was about. Enough of this cryptic bullshit. He explained quickly, like he was anticipating my responses. You know... Your real last name is associated with your phone number, right? Not to mention, you don't even own a car. I hesitated. Should I just hang up? He'd probably keep calling me. But something in his voice told me there was more. How was work today? So clever. I touted back, refusing to waver or give this asshole even a tiny ounce of what he wanted. If you gave me your real name... I could probably figure out where you're hiding, too. I'm not hiding. I'll text you our address if you want to meet with customer service in person. Just ask for Paul. But you won't. Why is that? An incoming text made me jump. Was I actually nervous talking to this guy? Something about his tone just seemed too cheerful. Before I could look, a different voice on the phone spoke. The one I vaguely recognized from the 911 call that day. You'll be too busy handling your roommate. They're not home. Paul, or whoever that was, hung up. But then the apartment door flew open. Oh, thank God you're okay. Z rushed in, giving me a hug. What the hell? Why wouldn't I be okay? Because of the voicemail you left me? They pulled out their phone, pressed a button while giving me a look like there were three of me. I stared with my eyebrow raised, questioning, until Z's phone started to replay the message. Z, it's me. The voice started crying, hysterical and deeply disturbed at one moment. It's happening again. I'm holding my gun and I'm trying to pick myself up off the kitchen floor. It hurts too much to move. And then whispering, almost like a secret to a child. Pulled all my fingernails out. There was heavy breathing into the phone until Z ended the voicemail. My eyes were wide, and I can only imagine the look on my face. He called you too? This was getting scary. That same guy who called 911 earlier, who hung up on me a minute ago, was now calling other people in my life too. But I wasn't prepared for what Z said. What do you mean he? That was you on the phone. Excuse me? I didn't believe it. Even when Z showed me their phone screen. One missed call. New voicemail from my cell number. With my face next to it. 
That's not me. Of course it is. That's your voice. We've been down this road. Is that why I didn't recognize it? That can't be right. Don't answer this. I pulled out my own phone. It rang. Z bitch-buttoned it, knowing what I was doing. Z, it's me. It's happening again. I tried to imitate what I could remember. I ended the call. Without skipping a beat, Z played it back to me. Z, it's me. It's happening again. That's the thing about your own voice. You don't recognize it on the phone. Maybe it's the mechanical nature of technology, or that thing you hear people talk about where their voice inside their head is different from the one everyone else hears. It's bizarre, but it certainly was my voice. The same one, maybe, that was from the missed call. The one that spoke to me earlier. What the fuck was going on? Are you losing time? You should go to the police. Or the doctor. Among other unhelpful suggestions, what the hell were the police gonna do? I wasn't going crazy. Right? You better make sure you didn't call your wife with this shit. I clarified. Ex-wife. I checked my phone. No outgoing calls placed in the last, oh, 200 incoming at this point. None to Z, and definitely none to my ex. The rest of the day was empty. No missed calls from Paul or any other random number. The silence was almost worse than the constant ringing had been. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. I just held my phone, looking at the incoming call screen every few minutes, then clicking over to my text messages. The text from the number actually was an address. Somewhere in Virginia, about three hours south of me. I checked Google Maps, and there was definitely something there. A square building with no name associated in the middle of the woods. The cursor blinked back at me, almost tempting me to respond. I'd never actually go there. That would be idiotic. I'd be human trafficked or killed on the spot by whatever shady crap was happening there. I certainly wouldn't voluntarily put myself in danger just to stop some spam phone calls when I couldn't even stand up for myself when it counted. I could call the cops, maybe, leave an anonymous tip, but then what if it isn't a real address? They'd just be messing with me again. Whoever they were. I saved the number from the text as a new contact in my phone. Paul. It seemed like my best option was to leave it alone. I clicked back, away from the address, put my phone down on the nightstand, and tried to fall asleep. After a futile few minutes, I picked up my phone again and texted my ex. If you have a missed call from me, just delete the voicemail. A bang outside my room nearly made me fall out of the bed. Then it was followed by a few more. Was someone pounding on the door? Z! I called down the narrow hall. They popped out of their bedroom. Not them. We crept to the door. Another set of pounding, followed by... This is the Baltimore Police Department. Open up! Z backed off. I didn't blame them. I'll answer the door. First, I peered through the peephole. Yep, dressed in police uniforms. That didn't really mean anything. Can you hold some ID up to the door? We're here looking for Vincent. Is that you? Open the door or we have authority to knock it down. What the fuck? I let them in. Z stood with their phone in hand, just in case. Once inside, it was like a whirlwind. Sir, you're going to need to come with us. 
What's this about? I protested, but not stupidly enough to get myself shot. They wouldn't tell me, but I went with them, shoved in the back of a police car for an uncomfortably silent ride to the nearest station. They rushed me to a room with a small table and chair. A camera was set up across from me. They'd taken my things. Good riddance to the cell phone for a bit. I stood at that table in the middle of the night, wondering if I'd uncovered some weird conspiracy or a criminal mastermind named Paul on whom I was the only one with info. Yeah, right. My blood was boiling. Knots in my stomach. Nervous, anxious, scared, you name it. And I'd been in this precinct before, although not under the same circumstances, obviously. After what felt like hours, someone finally came in. A man in a suit introduced himself as Detective Bosch. He was a prick, in case anyone there is reading this. And I still deny what they have on the recording. I'm sure you know why we're here. I didn't, and he didn't like that answer. He pulled out a laptop and placed it on the table. After typing something, he spun it around and pressed play. I didn't recognize the first voice on the recording. Baltimore City PD, where can I direct your call? But I did recognize the second. I'd like to confess to a shooting. The recording went on with extreme detail. The person on the call, me, described the shooting of a man a few weeks ago in a back alley across the city. I remember those reports. I watched the news religiously. The guy was a dealer. Cops initially thought self-defense or a deal gone wrong. His blood tested positive for a bunch of stuff, and they found unmatched DNA on the scene. Detective Bosch asked if I'd submit a sample of DNA, which, of course, I would. I wasn't involved in any shooting. But you own a 22 caliber handgun, correct? The bullet used by the shooter was identified. I did. But just because it was the same type of gun I owned, registered, and locked away in my bedroom didn't mean anything. He asked if they could examine the gun. I said no, unless my DNA somehow proved I was on the scene. But that would have taken things to another level, way past someone who sounded like me calling in a fake confession. You know false confessions are a crime in themselves, right? That wasn't me on the phone. Someone is harassing me. Sure, he probably said. It's all a blur at this point. I was kept there for hours and then finally released. Bosch handed me my phone back, glaring at me. Don't leave the state. I hadn't planned on it, but after looking at my phone, waiting at the bus stop, I reconsidered. 10.21 a.m. 754 missed calls. 300 voicemails and another few hundred texts. It took me the rest of the day to go through them all. There were hate messages, dick pics, solicitations for sex, spam offers, graphic violent videos and images texted to me, and my mom saying to call me, call me now. I had a handful of loan approval messages in amounts ranging from $1,000 to $50,000. Personal loans, a home loan in my name apparently, a voicemail from my boss. If you were going to quit, you could have at least given me two weeks and not been such an ass on the phone. Fine, you won't be missed. Even a few dozen from my ex-wife. You fucking asshole, and I hope you choke, were among the text highlights. I didn't even make it through the voicemails before calling her. How dare you fucking call me? 
I tried to explain. I don't want to hear any more of your bullshit excuses. If you're drinking again or on drugs, then fine. Go die in a back alley for all I care. But you cannot say those things about our daughter just because you don't want to accept that you're a coward who didn't protect us. I grieved my own way, and part of it was getting rid of you. Z was gone when I got back, with a note that just said, Get help. And I was on the phone the rest of the afternoon, trying to unravel what had happened. Sir, we can't take the money back just because you're regretting the loan. And... Your father and I think you should go to therapy. No one should talk to people the way you did. Or, thank you for your generous donation to the children's hospital. We've publicly announced our gratitude. They had my name, my voice, my fucking social security number, credit card info. I don't know what else. I don't know how they got it all. Just talking on the phone? My phone beeped mid-conversation with someone, trying to undo whatever was done in those few hours. An update from your provider. We're sorry to see you go. And then I had no service. But I could still pull up my old text messages. And staring me in the face, it was right there. That fucking address. With a name above it like a friend. Paul. On autopilot, I was bent over in front of my nightstand, grabbing whatever cash I had, my gun, and a hoodie. I came to my senses during a two-hour train ride south as I was questioning what I was doing, damning myself for answering that phone call in the first place and wondering why I thought I could fix any of this by walking into a sketchy building carrying a tiny, single-shot self-defense pistol. I got into a taxi in Virginia, paying cash. I'm honestly surprised they even still existed, but it helped since I now had maxed credit on all my cards and zero dollars in my checking account. Hell, my Uber account was probably hacked, too. The driver didn't want to talk, which I was glad about. I was not in the mood to let anyone else hear my voice. I sort of stared out the window as the cab went from cityscape to back roads to middle-of-nowhere dirt path. Embedded in the back of the passenger side car was one of those little taxi TVs playing the news on mute. On it, the headline ticker read... Former 911 operator calls in bomb threat against U.S. Capitol. Police raid apartment. Next to the reporter was a captioned picture of me. Armed and dangerous. I didn't feel very dangerous. The driver turned to face me. We're here, I think. We were stopped on a gravel road with a dead-end sign. I looked around after I paid him. He drove away quickly. Can't blame the guy. He'll probably get asked about this by the police once they figure it out. Sorry, buddy. The woods around here were dense. The gravel road was atop a pretty steep hill, and it was either climb up another hill to see what was up there or go down to hope there was something below. I chose down. Down seemed like less effort, and I was exhausted. About halfway down is when I saw it. A small gray building about the same shape as whatever I'd seen on Google Maps. There were no signs, no logos, nothing. It just sort of sat in the middle of the woods. I watched the only door I could see, even after the sun went down. No one came in or out, so I decided to knock. Nothing at first. Then I pounded at the red metal door. There was a video camera looking down on me. 
I looked back up at it and pulled my hood off my head. The camera turned away. I kept pounding. Then the door swung out toward me. I had my hand on the gun inside my hoodie pocket. I tensed with it. Was I really going to shoot someone? What if it was Paul? Or what if, even worse, it was me? Or whoever sounded like me on the other side of that door? Holy shit. There was a bearded man standing in the doorway. He sounded like Paul. You're early. Then he smiled. You want the door? He waved me in, leaving the door open. My hand didn't stop tensing, but he just walked back inside, so I followed. What was this place? The hallway was dark, with a small red overhead light. I could barely see down the corridor as I followed into what was most definitely a trap, but Paul seemed to know where he was going. He took a right at the end of the hall into some room with glass windows. I could see inside before going in. The entire wall was lined with computer screens. Dozens, if not a hundred computers all running some software. I went in after him. Welcome to the call center. As if I knew what that was. He waved his hand around. On the table in the center was a single laptop, office phone, and it was probably his personal cell phone sitting next to it. He sat in the chair. We figured you'd get caught by the police before actually making it here. But you act on impulse, huh? (laughs) You made it out of the state before we even called in the bomb threat. You folded. And the only thing I could think to say was, We? Ah, yeah. The call center. This is just the one in this area. There's a bunch of DOD facilities gathering data for an AI voice program called MMIK. Or Mimic. It's a program that can replicate any human voice as long as it has enough samples. I'll spare you the boring details, but essentially this man's job was to call people using automated telephone software, then anyone who spoke was to be flagged in a system where they'd be monitored and recorded, gathering voice samples so that another AI program could replicate the voice perfectly for any phrase, any inflection. It's like creating a virtual copy of someone, as Paul described it. They were in late-stage testing, rolling out a final version soon. He was very excited about it. Much more than I was. Since you're a 911 operator, your voice was already recorded hundreds of times. So as soon as you said that quick fox phrase, we had enough to start using it. You're like an alpha tester. How cool is that? The FBI even authenticated the sample as a real threat. I squeezed the gun grip inside my hoodie pocket. You ruined my life. To test a software. Not just any software. This is going to revolutionize- I don't care! I was furious. Maybe even more mad now that I knew. You destroyed everything! Relax. We relocate everyone this happens to. You'll get a new life, new job, new identity, and- My ears started buzzing, and that brings me full circle. I found him. I found me, or us, or them, or whatever you want to call it. I thought it was just one guy. I figured he was trying to make a buck, scam some people, scare me. But after Paul explained everything to me, told me why and what it was all for, I felt angry. I felt taken advantage of. We stood there. And he just kept fucking talking. 
talking in circles, like everything was amazing and great. This latest test proves the endless possibilities of the software. Telling me about why they did this and that and blah, blah, blah. I just wanted him to stop. I wanted to not feel like a weakling who was at the mercy of whatever other people wanted to tell me across the phone. I wanted to be good and to be needed. And now I could never be either. I wanted to make him stop talking. So I pulled the trigger anyway. But then there was a loud sound, followed by silence. Sweet, sweet silence. Police are going to arrive, and they're going to help me. I hope. They'll find the body, of course, because I'm not hiding it. I'm sitting right next to it. Blood still dripping from the bullet hole. After I shot him, I took his phone from the table and dialed 911. Then I opened his web browser and made this account. Took me a while to write this. Way more than it should have taken the cops to get here, even if it was in the middle of the woods. Hello? Vince? It was the 911 operator. But it wasn't the same woman I had spoken to when I called. The voice was... It was my own again. I fumbled with the phone, turning the volume back up. The police aren't coming, Vince. The phone buzzed. A new text popped up from a random number. It was another address. Let's talk. As a young child, you may have had a traumatizing experience which has shaped how you behave into adulthood. Boiling water spilled on your hand might make you nervous around a stove. A large dog snarling and nipping at you might make you afraid of all dogs. But in this tale, shared with us by author B.J. Ballard, we meet a man who is dealing with his childhood trauma by doing something about the cause of it. That is, becoming a scientist, seeking to eradicate a particularly nasty species of ants. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. So don't let this story bug you. Try to coexist with other creatures. Otherwise, you just might face the end of the whole damn thing. It is such a weird feeling to realize your biggest achievement in life is also your biggest mistake. Much of my life was spent working towards a goal designed to benefit all of humanity. Altruism at its best, or so I thought. When I was younger, I had an experience that pushed me towards this, at the time, unforeseen goal. A terrible and painful encounter with a particularly aggressive nest of fire ants left me scornful and scarred, both physically and mentally. A lengthy hospital stay and subsequent follow-ups solidified my hatred of the little bastards. 
I began my endeavors just out of high school when I was more able to focus and pursue something tangible. Being moderately disfigured kept me mostly solitary, which both helped with my studies and reinforced my resolve to getting appropriate and effective revenge. During my time in college, I came across an idea that could help propel my studies further. Forid flies, specifically genus Pseudaction, as they were known to attack ants, specifically. I became enamored with the concept because why not use one pest to rid yourself of another, the enemy of my enemy, and all that. In time, I presented my thesis despite the snickering of my fellow seniors. Bug boy, I heard them whisper under their breaths. Well, the joke was on them as I got the grade I wanted along with an internship at the bio lab I'd been hoping for. Things were going my way, for sure. The first few years with the company were a little rough. I secured myself in a permanent position, but much like my academic years, I found I was the subject of many whispers and unflattering nicknames. Ant-Man, and that one hurt the most, for obvious reasons. The next year or two was spent researching and refining my project. We were met with some pushback for funding, but the combined merit of my work, along with some photos placing various board members in compromising situations, was enough to keep the project running and secure the grants we needed. Now, I'm not proud of my actions by any stretch, but there was no way I would allow my life's work to fall apart over such trivial matters as money. Anyway, we were able to make a breakthrough in the research not long afterward. A few years, perhaps. It's hard to tell what with how time flies. But after playing with some genetic sequencing and selective breeding, we created a strain of dactyles, as we called them, that was particularly aggressive. Their incubation times were significantly shorter than their original counterparts as well, and along with the shortened incubation came rapid maturation, which gave them a significantly shortened lifespan. The best part is, while being so far removed at this point, they were able to mate with the natural strain again, making spreading their effectiveness that much easier. We did a few field tests, which went just as swimmingly as we'd expected. After exterminating some severe ant colonies, we decided to push the dactyles for distribution. Due to their savage efficiency, the dactyles made it to the distribution stage within the next six months. Our first partners were pest control companies. They had an absolute field day with the new product. With the revenue coming in from the orders, we were able to begin research on a new strain. The success of my ant-based revenge wasn't enough anymore, no. I needed more to further my efforts. My hubris was catching up with me. Suddenly, being approachable in the office left me with a feeling alien to me. An inflated sense of pride, or rather ego, if you will. In no time, we'd gotten several new strains under research. It was ambitious, and despite the resources, we'd still spread ourselves considerably thin. Roaches, venomous spiders, even rats. We had a new mission. I had a new mission. Our new research would spread into more and different invasive species. It wasn't easy, but we... I made it work. With great difficulty, we progressed in our endeavors. Soon, we were cultivating and nurturing new dactyles, specifically engineered towards eliminating their respective targeted pests. 
The only one that seemed to give us considerable trouble were the rats. It seemed something made it hard for the Dactyles to successfully lay their larvae inside, resulting in repeated failures in the initial testing. It was then I had an idea. Through gene splicing, we were able to produce a new Dacti with a more voracious appetite than our previous creations, but also with the characteristics of bot flies, which were known for their taste for more mammalian realty. Following cultivation, we then saw the results we'd sought after. Admittedly, at no point did I consider we were going too far. Months passed without incident, we kept tabs on our dacties, and reports were coming back more or less in the positive. The targets would be exterminated, and then the dacties would soon die of their own accord. It was working beautifully. That is, until it wasn't. We received an incident report during the spring. Several businesses had their infestations treated via our dactyles, three different pests requiring their three respective dactyles. At this point, routine. Of the three, two went as planned, but the third, a particularly bad rodent infestation, ran into some complications we hadn't expected. Upon confirming the rodents had been eradicated, the dactyles should have died out on their own soon afterward. The problem is, when things began to return to normal, there was an attack. A homeless man had found his way into the back of the building and was using an almost forgotten storage room to get some sleep, away from the outside weather. He had apparently awoken to find himself covered with flies and pupating larvae within the confines of his flesh. By the time he was found, they had already hatched and subsequently died due to a lack of food source. The strangest part about it was they found some larvae in what could only be considered long-term cocoons buried deep within his decaying flesh. They recovered these cocoons and some of the dead flies tracing them back to our facility. When we received the samples, we noticed something peculiar about them when compared to the lab-preserved specimens. They had somehow become bigger, and they seemed to have grown functioning mandibles. Before, they fed via proboscis, but now there were teeth? When placed in a contained area with new live prey, the cocoons eventually opened up and the larvae quickly swarmed the rodent. I was floored by this new development. I set aside all of my plans and devoted my time to looking into the change. Soon there were more reports. At first they were similar. The Dactyles were resisting their own extermination and surviving long enough to reproduce with the help of the occasional family pet, horse tray, or even a few more human victims. We really started to panic when these incidents started receiving media attention though we were able to deflect under the guise that they were not the same dacties we were using and issuing, we still felt the heat. It didn't take long for funding to slow to a trickle before being cut off entirely. As we were shutting down, I kept up with the news coverage. Despite not providing fresh dacties anymore, the attacks persisted. They even seemed to become increasingly vicious. My heart sank when the report came about the eight-year-old girl. She had complained of a headache before falling out in a seizure. As her parents dialed 911, they said the small flies began erupting from all over her body. She was dead by the time paramedics arrived, as were her parents. 
The only saving grace was that during the attack, a candle was knocked over, causing a fire that consumed everything before their attack could spread further. I couldn't help but feel responsible. My lifelong hatred of past insects had come to a point of irreversible harm, and it was continuing full steam. It was then I took up heavy drinking. Within the span of a year, the Dactyes were voraciously attacking wildlife and spreading at an unprecedented rate, almost like a viral pandemic. Already there was a noticeable decline in some wildlife activity. Soon it was apparent the Dactyes had adapted to reproducing indiscriminately. The only living things unaffected either lived in water or exclusively underground. It felt as though it were only a matter of time before they adapted for those as well. Virtually nothing and no one was safe anymore. The growing issue of the Dactyes quickly exhausted emergency services. Following the news, they were invading other countries, even continents. South America and Canada were quickly invaded and decimated. The world's collective of shoulders slumped when they were discovered in Europe and New Zealand. When I was contacted about potentially developing some sort of specified pesticide or sedative, anything to slow down their progress, I laughed. I laughed until I'd gone hoarse. Ignoring their protestations, I more or less told them to go fuck themselves. Had we made efforts to fix this problem sooner, I might have been more cordial, but now, now that people were dying in droves, now that entire species were teetering on extinction, what were we even trying to save anymore, huh? What was left for us to survive on? Based on what we were seeing, the sheer magnitude of the situation called for a sweep of pesticides so strong we would essentially be scorching and salting the earth. No, we waited. Too long, we gave the Dactyes too much time to adapt and evolve. They were massive now, originally just large enough to lay a single egg on an ant. Now they varied in size from our originals to some that somehow had grown to the size of my thumbnail, and some even still a bit larger. In the span of a year or two, they had changed so much, it was unprecedented. I considered interbreeding was what allowed them to survive and grow and change. Now, the little fuckers didn't need me anymore. I was their creator, their god, but now, like everyone else, I cowered, hiding from the inevitability of death. I hear them tapping and banging against my window like carnivorous June bugs. Occasionally, I peek out to find several of the larger ones crawling over it looking for a way in. They had to smell me or just know that I or something was in here. A half-decent job of sealing the doors and windows of my home was enough to keep me safe, at least for now. I knew it would only buy me time. There was no getting away from a Dactai-ridden fate. Well, perhaps one way. Regardless, they seemed lax in plotting my destruction. Other homes seemed to be attacked more savagely, or perhaps they simply weren't that good at keeping them out. Maybe in some strange way they knew me from memories passed down from generation to generation. There was no way at all to tell, as how do we even know what memories a fly could hold? The persistent drone of their buzzing was maddening at first. It started small and in the distance, but like I'd imagine most everywhere else, it overtook the air like a storm cloud. 
but eventually it became almost like a lullaby of sorts. I would sleep peacefully to the sounds of their flapping wings and skittering, scratching feet. Despite the terror, I found them somehow soothing. Perhaps I had already gone mad. We've since lost power in the area. I locked my doors and windows some time ago. Not so much for the fear of them getting in, but others, you know, the would-be survivors? I watched several looters get eaten alive right outside my windows, and the swarms they birthed were magnificent. Rising through skin like butterflies from cocoons, spreading their iridescent wings and taking flight in swarms of silvery black. Watching each of these dactyles emerge and descend from their deceased host body was like, like watching my own progeny spring to life from the children of my children. Like a grandfather, I felt a sense of pride I know I shouldn't have. There is no foreseeable positive outcome to this situation, and while I cursed myself for being the veritable harbinger of mankind's inevitable extinction, I sat in a darkened room with the knowledge that those who mocked me in my youth, and even to this era of my life, would be nothing more than an incubator, if they weren't already, that is. I smiled to myself as I reveled in that last bit of hubris, opening a box that sat next to me. Though it was hard to see, I was able to manipulate the heavy metal open and place a single bullet in its cold cylinder. I closed it and opened my mouth. The rest of humanity most likely had a little while to fully go, but for me, it was the end of the whole damned thing. In our final tale, we meet two grad students loaded with money and looking to spend it. Oh wait, wait, no, that's silly. Grad students are broke and always looking to make some cash. So when they see an ad for a research project paying top dollar for participants, they can't help but be intrigued. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Vince D'Arcangelo, once they learn that the project doesn't involve taking strange medicine or getting probed in dark places, they sign up to test a new app. Now, if only they can figure out what all that data really means. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, and Mick Wingert. So check the app, follow the instructions, and take good notes. But don't forget, this is an experimental design. The bulletin read in bold black lettering, Are you a starving grad student? Are there any other kinds? 
I tore a strip of paper with a phone number from the bottom of the flyer. I held it up and asked McKenna, Want me to grab one for you? <laughs> what century are you living in, Tyler? McKenna snapped a photo with her phone. Though the same age, she was at least a decade ahead of me when it came to technology. The rest of the flyer read, Get paid $2,000 to participate in a multi-phase research project on the impact of design on human interaction. The first phase is a one-month commitment. Select candidates may qualify for phase two testing and further compensation. There was no university seal, meaning it was an outside research project, not one within the psychology department. Too good to be true. That's almost as much money as my research stipend. I dialed the number. AGR survey and research, how can I help you? Yeah, um, we're a couple of starving grad students. What have you got for us? Orientation for the study took place in a hangar at the defunct airport on the edge of town. McKenna and I waited in a makeshift lobby until a woman in a lab coat poked her head through a black curtain and called my name. I followed her down a hallway of cubicle panels. I'm Dr. Stonebridge. I trust you completed all the necessary paperwork? Yes, I filled it out online. Excellent. Have a seat. We were in a brightly lit cubicle, with only a narrow desk and an orange plastic chair on either side of it. I sat opposite Dr. Stonebridge. She reached a hand across the table, palm up. Please unlock your phone and hand it over. By consulting to be in the study, we had agreed to allow them to install an app on our phone. It showed up on my home screen yesterday, a blue tile with the letters A, G, and R in white. I'd opened it, but it was just a blank page with a password box. I slid my phone over to Dr. Stonebridge. I'm setting it down here so we can both see what I'm doing. She opened the AGR app, punched in a passcode, and slid the phone back to me. Tyler, please follow the on-screen prompt to reset your password. For the next month, I'd like you to explore the app on a daily basis for at least an hour. I followed the prompts, and the screen filled with a map of North America. Multicolored pins dotted the states and provinces. Every few days, the data set will change, so the map will look different. At the end of each of your sessions, you will complete a short questionnaire. Go ahead and click on one of the digital pins in the map. I zoomed in and picked a spot in Ohio, near where we were. A pop-up box opened, containing the following text. WF23XQ-AM-PE Is there a key to the abbreviations? 
No, that's for you to decipher. Your task is to pattern match. If a pattern emerges, perhaps the abbreviations will become apparent. Study the pins on the map and look for themes, trends, anything that might link them together. What about the different colors of the pins? Does that mean anything? Those are merely to help with visual identification. It makes it easier to differentiate between pins that are near each other. Easier on the eyes. Once finished, she walked me back to the lobby. McKenna returned from her own orientation about a minute later. She waved as she emerged from the curtain and smiled. (sighs) McKenna's smile. Off-centered, the right side of her mouth lifted higher than the other, almost like a sneer, while the left side tapered into a swoop. At once nervous and eager, her teeth neon bright against her soft, peachy flesh. I wondered if she realized how happy it made me whenever she walked into the room. Well, that was... interesting... McKenna and I met in our first year of grad school. We were both in the social psychology program, so we ran in the same circles, had the same classes and mentors. She was studying the intergenerational effects of acculturation among immigrant families. I was studying the rates of stress and crime during second-stage gentrification in urban centers. I don't think we parked over here. The day we met in orientation, I knew I would fall in love with McKenna. I've always resisted the idea of having a romantic type. If you were to ask me what my type was, I'd tell you that I just wanted to be with someone kind who makes me laugh. And yes, that describes McKenna. I truly didn't care if she was tall or short, blonde or redhead, white or black. Are you sure you parked here? But I'm also a scientist, and with about a dozen years of dating experience, I can't deny the evidence. Thinking back on all the women I've pursued or dated, they've tended to be short brunettes with goofy smiles and eccentric personalities. So, I admit it. Consciously or not, I have a type. And McKenna was it. Hey, Tyler. The problem was that throughout the first year of the program, she had a boyfriend. Second year, she was single, but I hadn't worked up the nerve to ask her out. Grad school is difficult enough without the added humiliation of rejection or a failed romance. But now, in our third year, I felt I had a shot. Earth to Tyler. Oh, Sorry, what? Isn't that your car over there? In the other direction? (laughs) Oh, right. Uh, My bad. Something on your mind? No, uh, yeah, I guess. It's nothing. Hey, uh, you want to go for a beer? Sure, we can compare notes. Usual place? 
The usual spot was a bar just off campus that offered starving student drink specials. Two-for-one beers and a basket of stale tortilla chips on Thursday nights. We ordered the special and grabbed a table on the rooftop patio. What do you uh, think of these serial numbers on the pins? I'm not sure about the letters at the end, but I bet the first set of letters and numbers represent gender and age. Well, what makes you say that? Well, uh, this is a little embarrassing, but I recognize some of the shorthand from my dating app. She looked away from me to hide a nervous smile. I raised the pint glass to my mouth to hide a grimace. The first segment of the code is using pretty standard shorthand. For example, WF23 would be white female, 23 years old. AM45 would be Asian male, 45 years old. Do you think there's any meaning to the colors of the pins? My doctor said they're randomized, like a jitter effect and meaningless. My guy told me they were randomly coded using M&Ms. <laughs> Likely story. Ah, so we're agreed. Classic experimental misdirection. Most death. We raised our pints and toasted. To scientific rigor and easy money. And M&M's. A couple of rounds later, I casually asked her the name of the dating app she was using. I began studying the map that night. The AGR app had a downloadable spreadsheet that I exported to my school computer. I typed up some code in Python to run a principal component analysis. After that, I created some charts and made a printout of the various code patterns that emerged. The codes were segmented. Each segment started with two letters followed by a number. WF23XQ-AM-E-P AM42-PAHT-I-VS LT17Q-FM-E-PV I ran the pins through various decrypting programs, but turned up nothing. Perhaps McKenna was right about them signifying race, gender, and age. Could this be some kind of dating app? Ah, an actual paper map. You really go all in? I thought we'd just compare notes on our laptops. To understand the data, I need to be able to see and touch it. I've been cross-referencing a number of open-source maps online to see if there are any matches with the AGR map. But so far, I haven't had any perfect matches. Dead end, huh? Uh, 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 I said there were no perfect matches. That means we can rule out the hypothesis, at least temporarily, that everything on the map is necessarily connected. I don't understand. Well, say each pin on the map is a hospital. 
then map overlays of American hospitals should at least return a partial match. But I'm not even getting partial matches of any significance. That suggests that there is too much noise in the dataset. Perhaps the red ones are hospitals and the green ones are libraries, for example. That could be throwing off the numbers. Okay, so what do we do now? We might try isolating the patterns. I think our next step is to filter by pin color. With less noise, we might find a stronger signal with our map overlays. We might get lucky and find out what the different colors mean. But the colors are meaningless. Just random M&Ms, right? She reached for my hand, squeezed it, and then placed it back on the map to point to something else. I couldn't hear a word she said. I was dizzy with joy. The next morning, I got up early and checked my phone. There was a text from McKenna. Tyler, I got a hit last night. Meet me at the lab ASAP. When I arrived at the lab... She had the map from the night before spread out on the table where we held our weekly lab meetings. A number of lab assistants and other grad students gathered around her. On the map, a route was marked in pink. It stretched from the Pacific Northwest down through Utah, Colorado, and eventually ending in Florida. Are you ready for this? I'm not sure you are. It's going to blow your mind. (laughs) Okay, okay. Hit me. It's a cookbook. What? Wait. (laughs) Just kidding. Actually, it's something even darker. This line right here is a match with Ted Bundy's murder route. You're just messing with me again. Seriously, everything matches up with the green-colored pins. Wow. That's... Wow. So, what are our next steps? I'll search for matches on the other routes. Meanwhile, see if you can decipher any of the coded information now that we know what these locations signify. It didn't take me long to accept McKenna's hypothesis. My initial research confirmed that the first segment of each pin number represented the ethnicity, gender, and age of Bundy's victims. With each match, I was able to learn more about the victims and cross-reference their personal details with the coded information in the pins. Eventually, I determined that the X stood for sex worker, and Q was a catch-all for the LGBTQ community. I couldn't account for everything in the codes, but I wrote up a key with what I had and showed it to McKenna the next day. Great work. She hugged me, and I thought I might melt. Any headway on the other segments? Uh, no, not yet. In some cases, letters are repeated from the first segment, but I'm pretty sure the meaning changes. An A in the first segment means something different than an A in the second segment, and so on. I'll keep working, though. She called me later that night. 
you're not going to believe this. I've also matched routes for John Wayne Gacy and Henry Lee Lucas. And I'm pretty sure I'll find others. What the fuck kind of study is this? This is pretty dark. I emailed you the pin data. See what you can find out and we'll compare notes. I added the new information to the spreadsheet I'd made for the Bundy route. Then I compiled information on each of the victims and entered them into a separate data set. I analyzed them against the abbreviations using different models. It took a week of coding and data shaping, but I theorized that the second segment related to the manner of death and other abuses. R stood for rape or sexual assault. B stood for bludgeoned or beaten to death. I thought C stood for choking, but it didn't match up 100%. The following week, we met for lunch in the school cafeteria. We sat on the same side of the table so that we could look at her laptop. Our legs were nearly touching. Uh... What do you, uh, make of the sea? Well, it's definitely not for choking. She ran a hand through her hair, pulling it back from her face. Her eyes had darkened from lack of sleep, and her face paled slightly. But she was all the more beautiful for it. Even Gauntness agreed with her. Is there an S anywhere? Like... S for strangling? No. I expected there to be an S for stabbing, but strangling would work too. Or maybe even for suffocation. That's it. Suffocation. But there aren't any S's. Right. Well, what's another way to describe someone running out of breath? I shrugged my shoulders. Then she filtered on just the pins for victims who were strangled to death. That's it. They all have an A. Asphyxiation. The A stands for asphyxiation. For all our progress in the first and second parts, we weren't able to decode the third segment by the end of the month. We went back to the airport hangar to meet with the research group. Once again, we were separated, and I met with Dr. Stonebridge alone in a brightly lit cubicle. Excellent work. You correctly figured out what we were mapping and decoded much of the first two segments. Can you tell me what the third segment represents? That's an excellent question, and segues us into the next phase of the study. Based on your performance in phase one, you have qualified to participate in the next stage. I hesitated, though I don't know why. The project was fun, and if phase two paid even half as well as the first, it was a no-brainer. And it could mean more detective work with McKenna. Um, how long does it last? It's another four weeks, same as the first. However, the compensation doubles for this stage. Doubles? I recalled McKenna's words when we first saw the flyer for the study more than a month ago. 
too good to be true. But as a grad student, I mean, how could I turn down this kind of money? I'm in. She opened up a folder on the desk and removed some papers. Excellent. Please read these over and sign. As you may have guessed, we are doing research on a web application. Phase one was very general, but from here forward, you will have access to proprietary information. This is a non-disclosure agreement stating that you won't reveal anything that you learn or think you've learned about the app. The NDA should probably have been a red flag, but that didn't occur to me at the time. What did I care about apps? I used my phone for calls, texts, and very occasionally photos. I wasn't glued to the screen the way McKenna was. I believed that the more time you spent on social media was less time you spent living. But I was happy to beta test for what they were paying. I signed the papers. I've just sent you the update. You will be able to access the new content by the time you get home. I can't believe you signed up for phase two. I don't think that's a good idea. Wait, didn't you... You you didn't sign up? I thought we'd be doing it together. Hell no. Don't you think the whole thing is suspicious? And more than a little creepy? I gave her a sideways glance, then started the car. Mysterious, sure. But I wouldn't say suspicious. Seriously? It's obviously product testing for a GPS-based tech startup. You know how these companies are. They mine personal data to sell to third parties all over the world. They collaborate with governments to spy on their own citizens. I don't know. We get some of our funding from the NSF. All research involves withholding information from the subjects. How is this any different from what we're doing? Well, there's the money involved. We're slaving away in the lab, giving sophomores extra credit or a meal swipe to be in our studies. They offer this crazy amount of money and ask us to sign an NDA. You don't see the difference? We stopped at a traffic light that had just turned red. I had planned on asking McKenna to go for a beer afterward. Instead, I dropped her off at her car in the university parking lot. See you Monday. That night I typed McKenna Delaport into an image search and found a number of photos posted online. She certainly loved her social media. The first pic I found was her university headshot in which she was wearing dark-rimmed glasses, her dark hair pulled back from her ears. The bottom of the photo cut off just as the milky skin of her neck appeared, an accidental burlesque. 
The second photo was from her LinkedIn profile. This shot, also framed from the shoulders up, was taken for a psychology conference she attended last year. The third photograph was of her at her sister's wedding. This was easily the shot that best captured her personality. She looks stunning in a pink dress, thrusting a hip toward the lens and sticking out her tongue for the camera. Playful, silly, unintentionally sexy, nerd goddess. That was McKenna. There was an intimacy to this last photo that made me squirm. It was a very personal image from a family gathering I hadn't been invited to attend. It was the kind of photo that I never would have seen in prior decades. It felt invasive to stare at it, but I reminded myself that I wasn't doing anything illegal. It was a public image. I didn't hack anybody. It wasn't stalking. It wasn't any different from staring at a billboard that you pass on the highway. After all, she posted it, and there weren't any legal or ethical restrictions on personal use. I downloaded many of the images to a local folder in case they were ever taken down. My own personal photo album of McKenna. I closed the browser and went back to the AGR dataset, but I couldn't get her out of my head. This was our project. This was supposed to be the thing that finally brought us together. But here I was, working on the data alone, while she was meeting other men online. Frustrated, I closed out the data set and opened the dating app she told me she used. I created an account. I'd never used a dating app before, so I wasn't sure how it worked. I had assumed that I would just type McKenna Delaporte into a search box and go, but that wasn't the case. First, I had to complete a personality profile. Submit. Then, images of women popped onto the screen. I scrolled through the photos, wondering if they were randomly selected. If so, I might scroll all day and never come across McKenna. To increase my chances of a match, I went to my interests tab and added some of what I knew to be McKenna's favorite activities. Horse riding, reading by the lake, and foods, sushi, boxed macaroni and cheese. I was about to enter in my educational background when I had my eureka moment. The data set for phase two. I understood what it meant now. Instead of thinking about it as raw data, think of it like a dating app. After a few hours of internet research, I'd solved phase two. Although the findings were strange. My program proved it was a list of suspects in active homicide investigations. What the fuck is this? Spill it. What did you want to tell me? The AGR app is crowdsourcing detective work. Huh? How does that work? 
The app matches a constellation of interests, activities, and physical features against a bank of suspect profiles. It's going to make someone in Silicon Valley very wealthy. How did you figure it out? I should have been prepared for this question. Of course, she would ask that. And I couldn't tell her that the solution had come to me while trolling on her dating app. After a few ums and wells, I blurted out, SEO. SEO? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know, basic uh, principles of search engine optimization. It pretty much clicked into place once I started to think of the collected variables as keywords. Impressive. Uh, look, Tyler. I also wanted to say that I'm sorry about the other day. I was upset, and I didn't have the right to attack you for choosing to continue in the study. Clearly, it was the right call. Look at you, you figured it out. Oh, don't worry about it. No way. Let's say I make it up to you by buying you a beer after class sometime this week. I clenched my jaw to keep from smiling too wide. But it was a losing cause. I was a grinning idiot. That sounds great. How about tonight? <laughs> Sorry, can't tonight. Oh, paper due? No, <laughs> I've got a first date. A guy from my app. I stabbed at my salad and swallowed my thoughts. McKenna didn't notice. She had picked up her phone and was scrolling through the app and smiling. Oh, Tyler, I think you'll like him. We've been texting all week and I'm feeling optimistic about him. He's also a grad student, studying something At very first, I tuned out her description of him. Why did I care about this great new guy she met? But as she went on, a spark of recognition hit. Perhaps it was the cadence of her descriptors, or just the abstract way we describe people we don't know yet. I realized McKenna wasn't actually describing her online date. She was declaring a wish list of what she wanted him to be. Ambitious, hardworking, positive, pro-social. Maybe he was these things, and maybe he wasn't. These weren't traits so much as possibilities. We create strangers as much as they reveal themselves to us. It's crazy to think how similar our undergrad research was, especially considering where he went to school. And that just made me depressed. The perfect guy could be sitting right across from her, and she might never realize it due to a faulty hypothesis. She didn't know me at all, really. Suggested we guess what each other might like based on our profiles and surprise each other. I'm thinking Mexican food. Or maybe Japanese? I nodded politely and was hoping she'd just let the issue die. Would you like to see his profile picture? I've gotta go. Um, I'll see you in the lab. Tyler, wait. You haven't even finished your... I went straight to my office and logged into the dating app. 
I updated my profile once more. I squeezed the keywords ambitious and hardworking into my employment background. I added positive and pro-social to my personal description and clicked save. I was determined to figure out the algorithm so that McKenna and I would be a match. That night, after five edits to my profile and eight beers in, I finally found her. McKenna Delaporte. Common interests. 72% match. Education? 98% match. Employment? 85% match. I'd solved the app's algorithm. McKenna and I were compatible. A text message with a pushpin graphic popped up on my screen. It read, Looks like a good match. Would you like to poke this person to start a conversation? I clicked no and closed the app. To keep my mind off McKenna, I threw myself into the AGR dataset. I called in sick to the lab and skipped classes for the rest of the week. I'd unlocked more profiles, more maps, and the deeper I got into AGR, the more proficient I became at identifying suspects. It was so much like the dating app, I thought. The way McKenna described her date in keywords was exactly the way I used keywords to match suspects in AGR. But there was something bizarre about this new batch of profiles I had received from Dr. Stonebridge. I was able to identify the people, but they were no longer victims or suspects of violent crime. They just seemed to be random people. Folks from towns all across America. Nothing remarkable. Obviously, this was the start of a new phase of the study. But what was the connection? I noticed there were tags with each profile, but unlike in the other phases, there was no interface to connect them. Suspicious, I clicked on my dev tools to see if I could inspect the elements of the AGR app. It was a long shot that I'd find anything, but it was worth a look. Thankfully, someone at AGR must have screwed up a setting because I was able to unlock the source code. Or was that intentional? Did they want us to find the source code? Either way, I downloaded the script to my cloud drive and opened it in a text editor on my laptop. I gave myself a migraine searching through the foreign-looking text, but eventually I found it. A small, seemingly insignificant bit of code that had been commented out. I converted it into executable code and rendered the script. <sighs> it worked, to my surprise. And to my horror. 
I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But once I'd come to terms with it, I called the FBI. Of course, agents found the airport hangar empty when they arrived. There was no evidence that a Dr. Stonebridge had ever ushered study participants through a maze of curtains and cubicles. No banks of computers, no waiting room. The AGR app had been wiped from my phone remotely. A search for AGR on the web revealed nothing. And though there are plenty of doctors named Stonebridge in the world, there aren't any that match the person that I had met. I explained it all to an FBI agent named Gomez. That's not surprising. Organizations like this usually operate on the dark web, not on the surface. So you'll be able to find them there? <laughs> no, not likely. They've probably got a hundred fake company names and profiles already in circulation. Looks like they've taken this one down already. But can't you trace all the shell companies back to the source? You're thinking of the movies. The fantasy is that these companies are like dominoes. You take one down and the others fall. But in reality, they're like tentacles. You cut one off and move on to the next, but you never get closer to the source. But how did they know I'd gone to the FBI? They probably didn't know that. Not exactly. They likely had an alert set up in case someone accessed the source code. They probably shut down operations and wiped all prints from the hangar before you'd even figured out what you'd stumbled on. And that was the end of that? No more study, no more money. All I had left was the glory of having solved the awful mystery of AGR. It was a dating app you might say. My theory was that it was designed for predators to find potential victims, allowing them to search by physical attributes, work schedules, family details, commuting patterns. They could use the tracker feature to tell when they had come under suspicion so that they could go dark and change up their pattern. Want to know where to find the highest concentration of red-headed sex workers in the Midwest? What about the least patrolled highways in the Pacific Northwest? How about which nurses in Florida are registered gun owners and which are not? The AGR app can supply you with all this information, if you can find it. Of course, it's unlikely it will ever appear under the AGR moniker again, and it's doubtful the software we tested would ever be released as a standalone app. Gomez suggested that the code I uncovered will probably be bundled deep within a separate software package, unknowingly acquired by a third-party vendor and passed on through acquisitions and mergers. The big concern these days is Stego malware. Malicious scripts buried within subfolders of subfolders. That means this software could already be out there like an unchecked tumor, lurking in the deepest source code of your social media, disseminating itself through your vacation videos, birthday memes, 
your music stream, or even your dating app. It may have already installed a rootkit in your operating system to avoid detection. I've texted McKenna about my discovery. I've left voice messages, but she hasn't been returning my calls or showing up to the lab. It's been a week since her date, but nobody's heard from her. I don't know where she went for dinner or what movie she saw, since her date had insisted that they be a surprise. A smart tactic to make a potential victim difficult to track. If McKenna ever mentioned his name, I don't recall. Or I wasn't listening. A few times a day now, I log into the dating app, scroll through my matches until I find McKenna, and press the poke button. She has yet to poke me back. All that remains is her online profile, metadata, and match statistics. But there are always more searches, more matches, more social apps to post your personal information, aren't there? New interfaces and databases where we can search by name, by category, most recent, most viewed. In time, I may not even remember McKenna as she was, but only as she presented herself in her various profiles. I will remember her by her keywords, by the web images I downloaded. I will forget how different we were. I will only remember how well-matched we appeared to be on a dating site. I will forget that it took days of manipulating the algorithm to generate that match. I will keep searching because there seems to be no end to the app. In fact, there's still one on my laptop. I made a backup of the AGR code before handing the original over to the FBI. I don't plan to share the code or post it. I will never sell it, not at any price, so don't even bother asking. And once I'm finished with it, I plan to destroy it. I've kept it for only one purpose. To see if I can track down the guy McKenna was meeting for her date. After all, he was a grad student in our area. He must have enrolled at our university, if not our program. That makes it likely that he was also part of the AGR study. If I can find him, then maybe... I can find McKenna. Every day, I'll check the app in case she responds to my poke. I'll scour every new media platform to see if she resurfaces somewhere else. It will take a lot of work, but with the right algorithm, I think I can do it. Until then, her pictures and profiles are the only evidence she ever existed. I'm starting to understand her better now. Constructing a life on social media is not the same as living a life, but it is proof that one must live. With every social media post, 
McKenna was asserting that she was alive. That she had been alive. Because once you're gone, what's left? survived our terrifying tales. Join us again next week, if you dare. The No Sleep Podcast Hour is presented by WNSP in conjunction with Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast Hour, we thank you for tuning in and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.